That's a good, that's a good thought. Okay, so let's share from that then. Okay, why don't we do that? We'll share from Philippians 2 and, uh, and Philippians 2. It's known as the, uh, the great kenosis pas- passage in scriptures and in, in, uh, in the scriptures. And, and, and really when Philippians, when, it, when it's dealing with these truths, when it deals with that, what it's dealing with is this, is, this has to do, it's not so much teaching the doctrine as it is ex, the personal experience. That's what Philippians, the book of Philippians goes into. It goes into personal, it's not so much teaching like Ephesians and Colossians. Really, pretty much it's, it's going into a personal experience. That's what it's going into. And so when it says that in, in this chapter, uh, it is so amazing when we think about it because even in Philippians 2 and verse 1, and, and we know these ifs, right? So as we've, as we've been taught, that it, when we look at certain translations and it's what makes necessary the original, the original word with the tense, the mood, the case, the voice, and so forth, what makes those things, and you don't necessarily have to bring them up in your teaching, you know, but... To understand these little words, if, of, and in, are extremely important in the context of where they're located. So in our English, English we, have the, we have the English, the word if, it means it may, maybe or maybe not. It might be or it might not. That's if. But here in the original, it's if because of the context of what has just gone on before. And we must remember that. There are no, in the original, there really weren't any chapters and verses. It was just a beautiful flow. It's one continuous flow. It's like the type, do you remember when in, in, in Psalm 22, I think it's 16, 17, around in there, around in that particular place where the, uh, the soldiers were casting lots for his, his vesture, his robe, and it was seam. It was, one, it was made of one whole seam, and they couldn't divide it or separate it, so they cast lots to see who would get it. And that's really, that's really the type of the, of the word that Christ is. I mean, it's, it's all one continuous thing. It is a living organism. It's a living organism that is the very nature of God and when we receive that word in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13, not as the word of men, and some do teach it from rep- reputation, and that's where you get all your de- denominations, and we can see clearly in 1 Corinthians 1, 12 and 13 that Christ is not divided. Some say, I am of Paul, his reputation, and I make it mine. Uh, some say, I am of Apollos, some say Peter, and so forth. But, and then there's those that don't have any order at all and don't understand it, and we are of Christ. We don't need God's order. So in any case, in those verses, there's just no order when it's not Christ. And he is seamless in his, his person, his nature, his character, and his essence in the work that only he has finished because he was the only one according to Psalm 47 and 8 and Hebrews 10, uh, 5 to 9, he's the only one that could accomplish that because he was one 
in the eternal mind of God as that lamb in Revelations 13, 8 that was slain from the foundation of the world. So even when you bring it into, when you bring in reputation of the flesh, even into Christianity, it's some work of the flesh, okay? It's not, it's, it's taking away glory, and when you take away the glory of Christ, they're not preaching him and him alone as your only authority. You lower him down to your reputation, and you use him and use the scriptures to prop up your own reputation. And of course, in Galatians 6, a chapter, a 6 chapter in, the, in verses 12 to 14, brings out the clarity of how that can happen. So here, though, this Philippians is the epistle in this sense of personal experience. And what it brings out, and it's based upon, the if here is brought out with that first chapter of Philippians, the if there. And of course it goes into, uh, really, in, in verses 27 to 30 in Philippians 1, it says, only let your conversation, and conversation here is where we get, where we get the Greek word, it's citizenship. Let your citizenship. So do we speak and talk on this earth right now because it's a worldly system right now, do we speak like that? Or do we speak the same things through a submitted will and, of course, through proper preaching and teaching. It says, only let your citizenship be as it becomes, what? The very gospel of Christ. And we know that the word gospel, if we look at that, really, it is Christ who is the word in John 1 and verse 14. And the word gospel means God spelled. Christ came as the word, the very full thought of God, and he spells out the very nature, character, and essence of God in him, himself, in his person who completed that work. And so this is what it's saying here. In the gospel, notice that, okay, and it's called good news, and if there's any good, is it only in God in Exodus 34 and verse 6, in Matthew 19 and verse 17, and in Luke 18 verse 19, only good is in God. Only good is in God, period. And so let, let it, that good news be the revelation of Christ in your earthen vessel in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But here it says that whether I come and see you, okay, is this just Paul? Or is this God the Holy Spirit through Paul? Through Paul and through him and to us. That whether I come and, 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 and see you or else I be absent, is God always present? <laughs> Even if Paul isn't? Even if those that God uses in our life to bring the word, is God still present? Is he present? He's present everywhere. We see that in Jeremiah 23 and verse 24 and in Proverbs 5 and verse 21 and scores of other scriptures. He's present. He's everywhere present simply because in Isaiah 57 and verse 15, he inhabits eternity. Meaning, the whole parenthesis and enclosure of time is God who inhabits eternity and just wants to be welcome in the time that he's given us, in the greatest opportunity that we have. And of course, we'll see it in Philippians 2 and verse 5, the mind of Christ. And it's brought out again in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 16. So he says that whether I come or else I be absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast, immovable in one spirit, notice, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, okay, and not against it, 
there is a labor, and the striving is just simply labor in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 58, knowing this, that the labor of the Lord is not in vain. It's never in vain, that kind of labor. There is that right kind of labor, and that's brought out again in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, and 1 Timothy 5 and verse 17. This proper labor in that sense. But here, again, this is it here, that striving or laboring what? Together. What are we doing in in the local assembly where God has established us and placed us? What are we to do? We are laboring what? Together. And that's what Ephesians, the fourth chapter, brings out in a crystal clear clarity. And if I am a prisoner of the Lord and a prisoner, and Ephesians 4, 1 and Ephesians 3, verse 1, just simply means one whose will has been captured by another. The greater, the greatest, God has captured the will of the least. Isn't that amazing? It's just incredible when we think about it. So this is what it's saying here. Striving together for the faith, and when it says the faith here, it's all those truths about the very person and the very work of Christ accomplished already and brought out through the power of the Holy Spirit in John 16, 13, and 14. So here it says this, that we're striving together for the faith, and that's Ephesians 6.16. The faith in this particular sense. You see, again, this is personal experience, but it's bringing out the personal experience and the truth of the height of the Christian position and how we're to walk on this earth in this worldly system as we walk through it as strangers and pilgrims in 1 Peter 2.11. We are not of here, not of this particular world. In Hebrews 13.14, we seek a greater city, to come, whose builder, the foundation and builder and maker is God himself. We're just passing through. Jesus just passed through. There was nothing of him in this world, nothing that he allowed it in him, of course, in John 17 and verse 14. And as a result, in John 17 and verse 16, neither are we of the world. We're in it, but not of it. We know that the only place that we function in it is when we function in the flesh that's in us, in Romans 8, 9, that we're not of. We're not of that proper character and that proper image. That proper image, which is the new nature that God through Christ has made us to become in the most miracle, incredible work, partakers of. That through that nature, we escape the lusts that are in this world that are ready to be active and to reproduce itself in the flesh, in the believer. And that's in 2 Peter 1, verses 4 and 5. So here we see this in Philippians, the first chapter. We see this. It is the faith, notice, it is the faith, all those truths about the person and the work that Christ himself alone has already accomplished. This is a past tense but is a present active participle, which is beautiful when we understand these things in the original languages. At, at some point, hopefully, we, we uh, want to be able to get into those particular truths there. But what we see here, again, what we see here, it is, it is the faith and of. And of here is constituted of the exact same substance. Okay? We have been constituted 
of the very substance of Christ and his humanity, what he's accomplished for us is our very life in Colossians 3 and verse 4. And this, again, is our image. And it's reflecting our brand new nature in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, something that the enemy despises and hates. And that's why we need to do it together. The battle is the Lord's, but it is his together. He never, ever. Yes, we're all to put on the armor in Ephesians 6, 10 to 17. We are, but we never fight. We fight our battles, but we do personally, but we do it together and corporately. See, because long before it's Ephesians the 6th chapter, it's Ephesians the 4th chapter. If it's Ephesians the 4th chapter, it's going to bring out proper relationship and intimacy in the 5th chapter of Ephesians. Then it goes into spiritual warfare, but we can't battle correctly if we don't know the first three chapters of Ephesians because that brings out the height of our position, the very beauty of the image of, of who Christ has made us to be in himself. That brand new, incredible, unbelievable nature that he so freely gave us because in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we are saved by grace, the unmerited favor and kindness of God towards objects that were not worthy in themselves at all. We are saved by grace through faith. That word pistis and pistuo, the complete leaning of the entire self on something that Christ has accomplished. We are saved by grace through faith. And even that, not of ourselves, but even that is the gift of God. And not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Notice that, created in Christ Jesus. There's image, that's new nature. Created in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, which God has before ordained in eternity past finished, but brought out and made very real in time through Christ, that we should walk in them. And, and we know how we should walk in 1 John 2 and verse 6 and 1 Peter 2 and verse 21. We're to walk in those steps that Christ has accomplished for us and in and through each of us. And so what we look at here is where it says in Philippians 1 and verse 27, with one mind striving together for the gospel of, the, the faith of the gospel. There's that dyslexia a little bit again. <laughs> it's the faith of that complete dependence that's constituted of Christ himself, the gospel. The good news spelled out as the full thought of God, as that very word that was exchanged between the two in John 1 and verse 1. And then what does this lead us to? When, when I have a proper experience of Ephesians and Colossians, and, there, and we understand in those places what, ha, what has to happen, and, and the growth in 2 Peter 3.18 of the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior in each of us as an individual, what does it lead us to be? In nothing terrified by our adversaries. Why? Because we are enclosed in the very love of God and everything outside of that amounts to what? Nothing. That's why in 1 John 2.15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the world in, in, in their experience, the love of the Father has not reached their experience 
in the desire and the intimacy that God has, and the proof of it is he gave us his son. So love not the world in 1 John 2, 15. These are the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not active in him. And these are the things that are in the world in 1 John 2, 16. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And these things that are not of God, but in verse 17, they are on their way to passing away. Thank you, Lord, forever. <laughs> and that's what we're growing in. So, but in nothing terrified by your adversaries. By your adversaries. The adversary that's looking. He cannot touch the relationship. He cannot touch the position. He cannot touch the place that we have in Christ. It's far above all principalities and powers. That's brought in, in first, uh, the first uh, chapter of Ephesians. And you can look at verse 21, 22, and 23. We're far above all principality and power in him. Way above him. And, and, and terrified by your adversary. So we have an adversary and we need to watch and be careful constantly. And the reason we, we have this adversary, do you remember what Paul said? those things that were constantly working against him. That nature that the enemy tries to actuate, that nature that is anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-self in opposition in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 25 is called the flesh. And that's why he even said, that's why he even said these scriptures. And I'll just read these here uh, very quickly here in 1 Corinthians 9 and, and, and we can see how this works here in 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16, it says, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. You know what that's saying there? Huh? He can't love himself. Only God can do that. He can only do it in the experience and that experience is that it brings down that position into the experience when the will has been submitted. And we see that in 1 Peter 5 and verse 6, and in James 4 and verse 6. But here he said, For though I preach the gospel, which is Christ himself, I have nothing to glory of because it's all his. In Isaiah 42 and verse 8, he won't share his glory with anyone else. And in, 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 in Galatians 6 and verse 14, God forbids that I should glory except in the cross of Jesus Christ, of whom the whole world system and all its reputation and all the flesh has been dealt with. It's been crucified. Notice, that whole world system that we're in right now has been crucified as far as God's concerned. For us, it doesn't exist. The only thing that does is who we are in Christ. Who we are in Christ. There, he never removes his eye. In Job 36 and verse 7, because Christ is our righteousness, in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30, ever. He never removes his eye, but certainly I don't experience it in the flesh. And this is why Paul was saying even here, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. What is the necessity? It's the essence of who God is, love. Love received makes everything to be the one necessity, and that's Christ his Son, who he gave in John 1 and verse 14, in John 3 and verse 16, and that's why in 1 John 4, 10, here in his love, not that we loved him, we couldn't, 
but that he, as love, in 1 John 4, 8 and 16, loved us and sent his son, the propitiation for our sins. And that's why in 1 John 4, 19, we love. Why? Because he first loved us. And that first love is that continuance. In Revelation 2 and verse 4, and when we leave first love, another authority comes in. And for the Christian, it's the flesh It's a reputation, and all it is is submission to the enemy who wants to destroy proper image and bring you into a false image, a lie that makes you and I in the flesh to have a reputation or something to be guarded at every expense. First with God, with with his Christ, with the Holy Spirit, with the Word, with the cross, and with the body, and with a local assembly. I have a reputation. I can do it all alone. I can do it all by myself. And none of us can. Again, he said, here, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I, don't, if I preach not the gospel. And let me tell you, he's saying, I have to constantly, constantly receive it, submit to it, to experience it. So that flow of who Christ is, will come out as a man whose will has been captured. That's Ephesians 4 and verse 8. It brings it out crystal clear. The gift of that, the man himself is the gift. And those gifts in Ephesians 4.11, of which only now our evangelists and pastors and teachers, only function yoked up to Christ so that that life that he is in that particular vessel flows first. And then out of him comes what? Preaching Christ himself. Preaching Christ himself. And then he said this, for if I do this thing willingly, do you see that? The will has to be involved. Could Paul do it without a submitted will as an apostle? No. Could he? Did he have to? After going to the third heaven in 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, in those first few verses, after going there, did he not have to have a thorn? Because he was now back in the flesh. The constant thing that would get in the way and hinder proper image constantly. And then if we don't function in proper image, now we function in an improper image and it has nothing to do with other than the reputation of self, self-living minus every single one else. Starting with God, his Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Word, the body of Christ, the local assembly, the cross, everything. Well, he said, for if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. What is the reward? He's experiencing it. It's no longer a struggle. It's no longer his old reputation. Remember his old reputation in Philippians, the third chapter? Read his reputation to what he thought was so much in 1 through 8 of Philippians 3. He counted it all, what? Dung. And what is dung? It's useless. It's nothing. It's nothing. And without love, experiential love, which has positioned me in Christ, but without the experience being the equal of the, of the position, then what do I have? I am the enemy convinces me in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2. You're nothing, and therefore in verse 3, there's no profit, so you have to do something. 
And without him, in John 15, 1 to 5, what can we do? Nothing. He likes to actuate the flesh because I know, and again, as many times as we go back to it and forget God, in Romans 7, 18, I know in me that is in my flesh dwells what? No good thing. <laughs> no God in the experience, no love whatsoever. And that's why Jesus said in John 6, 63, it is the spirit that imparts life, imputes it and imparts it. The words, that, uh, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, the Spirit and their life, their Holy Spirit, bringing out the reality of that life, which is that new nature, which is that beautiful image by which we identify ourselves with Christ and Him alone. Him alone. And so if He said, if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, still, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. And what does that mean? That God is still waiting to be gracious. In Isaiah 30, in verse 8, he's still waiting for that will to be submitted so that we function in a proper image. Boy, I studied it again. And please, again, I'm asking for prayer. I promise you. I, I tell you in all humility, I am asking for prayer to, to complete this, even this first part of the book on image because the enemy hates it. He doesn't want it because it's who Christ is in each of us to the glory of God and to our eternal blessing and he does not want it. We forget how spiritually evil the warfare is. We do. But if we did, boy, we would, we'd go first for ourselves in Acts 6, 4, and then we'd get God's counsel and we would stay there for others. We really would. We only have so much time, all of us. And so I am asking for prayer because this cannot be done alone. I cannot do this alone because of this invisible atmosphere with all of its evil and hatred and using anything and everything he can against me to stop God from flowing. And, to, and that's true for any of us. Did we hear that? That's true for any of us. I'm not above anybody or below anybody. Neither is anyone else in Christ. We're all in the equal place. In, in Romans 3.19, we're all found guilty, but we're all guilt-free in Christ. In Romans 8.1. And I'm very thankful for that. So he said, I have a reward. But if it's against my will... What would the will be if God would be against it? It's the flesh, the actuation of the evil power of the enemy. Telling you your reputation is worth something. But it's been committed. God in his love has committed his son to us. And we received him positionally. Now will we do it experientially? Is it just salvation and that's it and off to heaven we go? Are we forgetting Revelations 2 and verse 17, the depth of an intimate fellowship in time, the opportunity of time before we go to be with him? And then we see also here, again, in 2 Corinthians 9, and this is this again, and again, reputation simply is in the Christian 
Reputation simply is trying to take the old guy and remake him in the experience. Because Satan wants his self-made man so that the man that is ignorant in pride under him thinks it's his reputation when it is no more than the enemy controlling the experience. It's no more than that. That's the ridiculousness of having that reputation. So in 2 Corinthians 9, we see, I mean, in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 9, we can see also here. And here it is. And this is why when we, we need to pray for each other, come together, especially men, I'm going to say it again, men. Man, I mean, we get so busy with things. Oh, we're so busy. Listen, if we get so busy that we can't come and hear the Word of God on a consistent basis and then enter into prayer as men, then that busy is not of God. I just want to make that clear as, as a bell. It's this bell. And God has to ding this bell constantly. So truth rings in it. The fact of the matter is, and here it is, and boy, if I don't get it as an initiator, as a husband, I don't really have a thing to give anyone else. Because outside of that love, I bring nothing. Nothing. So in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 9, it says, For a great door and effectual is opened unto me. Notice that. And there are many adversaries. Did you, you're wondering why as you go forward like you've never gone forward in your life today, the spiritual warfare has never been more intense. This is the reason why. Because God is opening a great door to you. And that door is Christ himself in John 10, 7 and 9. And he knocks on it in Revelations 3.20. That door, he, he as the door, is the fulfilled will of God as the word of God, John 4, verse 34, Psalm 47 and 8, again in Hebrews 10, 5 uh, through 9. He's that finished will, and he knocks on the door of your will. Then when you let him in to a submitted will, you have fellowship, you have intimacy. It's all about his love. Because nothing in this world system makes any sense outside of his love that is for us in Romans 8, 31 to 39, and in Psalm 56 and verse 9. A great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many ap oppositions. Many, many oppositions. Notice that? The great door. Megale, doors. It's talking about the width and reg region into which it's opened. God is opening re eternal realities for us in time. The enemy wants us to make time the issue, to forget eternal realities, to live in a reputation, to make work the number one thing. See some that, no, oh, got to go now. Okay, fine, I understand. And I do understand that. A great door. The door is Thora. T-H-U-R-A, Thora. Thora, what is that? It's an expression. God wants to express intimacy towards you through your open will, your open door, who Christ has finished it. And it becomes effectual. What is, what is effectual? It's en en energies. Energies is where we get active 
or effective energy and speaks of the influence gained by entering what? Entering, allowing him to enter in and experience the power of his love. That's what it goes into. These all have to do with image. All of it, every single bit of it. And there's a great door. And it's to me and it's for me. And in the original languages here, where it says this in, in, in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, it's in the dative. And the dative either speaks of advantage or disadvantage. And the door is opened. Because it's an advantage only if you open it. It's to great advantage. And the advantage always has to do with the glory of God being revealed. And the glory of God is only revealed through a proper blessing, properly received, based upon a proper image with a new nature. And that new nature that's been given to us from God, nothing can disturb or distract that nature. But a fleshly reputation can. Time that we think is ours can. You know, our Christ is very important and his love for his sheep. It's Nothing's more valuable. Nothing is more valuable to him than the individual. Nothing is more valuable to him than his, his church. It's his church, by the way, not a man's. That's why we don't glory in men in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 21. But here, here, it's to me. And it is a perfect... Passive indicative. Oh boy, that's a big bunch, right? No, perfect, complete. It's complete. Passive. You have to receive it by grace. You can't earn it. It's passive. And it's indicative. It's the mood and tense of absolute reality. That's what it speaks of. And it means it's open. And it stands open. Even this dispensation of grace, this church age, long before we go past the time of the Gentiles in Luke 21 and verse 24, but the fact of the matter is, it's still standing open. All this truth. This Christ still knocking. He's still knocking on the door of the individual. The church may be in ruins as far as its expression, not in its position. So he knocks on the door of the individual, and that's why in Matthew 16, and uh, that's why in Matthew 18 and verse 20, where two or three are gathered together in his name, there he is in the midst. And that's why the church of Philadelphia in Philippians 3, 8, 8 through 10, it was the smallest one. They had a little strength, and they kept his word. Just a little. And boy, there was a lot more they could have had, and there is a lot more that we can have. All we need to do is open the door of the free will. So that, with that free will, we can experience freedom and not bondage. It is, and it stands open. The door is this. Listen, the door is this. It's the metaphor for opportunity. That's what it is. It's an opportunity. The word today is an opportunity. And it's effectual. It's efficient. It's active. It's powerful. And the opening of the door does what? The opening of the door promises a rich field of labor, true labor. No longer laboring with a false reputation and a false image. Things of the world, things of the flesh. No longer doing that at all. No long, but laboring with Christ in you and you in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, you are so loved by God. We are so loved by him. Be steadfast, 
It's foundational truth. Unmovable, that's now the experience. The foundation is the position, the standing. In Romans 5, 1 and 2, that is steadfast. And then unmovable, that's the experience, which is the equal of the position. Always abounding in what? That it's the work of the Lord with a submitted will. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain, listen, in the Lord. In the Lord is new nature. New image about who we are and who he's made us to be. And this is what this is what is bringing out experientially, as we uh, as Mike shared that first verse in Philippians two, and in verse seven. But as we close this, so now we see why here. And now let's go back to Philippians one, and verse twenty-seven. It says, "Only let your lifestyle be as one that becomes that is one with the gospel of Christ." Right? That whether I come and see you or else I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs. That you stand fast, immovable in one spirit, with one mind, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, with one mind, striving, laboring in a beautiful way together for the faith, all those teachings, who Christ is and what he's accomplished in his person, of the gospel, the good news that he is, he is the very exegete. He, he exegetes God. He brings out who he is in each of us as an individual. That's what makes necessary to have right preaching and teaching. And then when it starts to submit our will and to do it instantly before the enemy can find a place where he can occupy in Ephesians 4 and verse 27. And the place that he occupies, that place, topos, T-O-P-O-S in the Greek, is the place where he can accuse and condemn us. First he'll deceive us in Revelations 12, 9. And then if we, we begin to function in the truth, he'll accuse us in Revelations 12, 10. He's just accusing Christ in us and who we are in him. And that's brought out in Hebrews 2, 11 and 12. And again, so as we wrap this up, this is what it's saying. And in nothing terrified. Is there any fear in love? In 1 John 4.18, has God given us the spirit of fear in 2 Timothy 1.7? No. No. No, but the fear of man is a snare in Proverbs 29.25. It's a trap. And how many Christians get trapped in a false image based upon a false reputation that's not of who they truly are and a proper image in Christ, reflecting the very image of Christ himself in each individual. Again, that image and that reflection is brought out very clearly again in Revelations 2 and verse 17. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition. It's literally you, the evidence of them, of them do, trying to terrify you is the result of their own terror. Because they even believe, even the demons in James 2 and verse 19, believe and they, but, but they tremble. Why? Because they don't experience it. They can't. Their will has been cemented. They can't change. In Revelation 22 and verse 11, they can't. And so, and that's why they believe a lie, and that's why God, God allows them in, in, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12 to be deceived because they're not going to change. They won't. And God knows it. Now, here, which is an evident token of, of perdition, but, separated, but, contrast, conjunction, but, to you of salvation, 
Listen, you wouldn't have an adversary. I wouldn't if we weren't already delivered. Why do we think these trials are some kind of a shot in 1 Peter 4.12? Knowing in 1 Peter 1.7 and Job 23 and verse 10, the trial of our faith is much more precious than gold. Much more precious. You know why? Because gold speaks of God's deity and he's invested himself in us. Is anything more valuable than that? And it was his son in his deity, God the son, gold, deity, put on humanity, silver, so he could redeem us as that sacrificial lamb. That's why in heaven you hear streets of gold. Everywhere you walk, it's nothing but the nature and character of God revealed through Christ in us as individuals. You don't need silver. You don't see silver in heaven anywhere in the book of Revelations because we don't need to re have redemption. We've already been redeemed in, in, Ephesians, uh, in, in Romans 3 and verse 24 to 26 and in Romans 4 and verse 25. We've already been redeemed. We've already been bought. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. We are no longer our own, thank God. We're no longer our own fallen, ruined image with that false reputation that amounts to nothing and just leads to continual condemnation and guilt. For unto you, though, it is given in the behalf of Christ, in the place of him, Colossians 1 and verse 24, we fill it up. We fill it up, and those afflictions and sufferings in 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 13 are all measured. 1 Thessalonians 3, 3. And they're all measured in 3, 13, all measured by God's love and wisdom. Nothing goes through the circle of God that touches us the dot without his permission. See the book of Job. Start with the first chapter and go all the way to the 40th. For unto you, this is each of us individually, is given in the behalf of Christ. Not only to believe on him, trust him, depend upon him for every single thing, but also to suffer, what? For his sake. <laughs> That's a privilege. Why is this happening? Because God is promoting you and me. Having the same conflict, Paul's saying, which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So if, and there is, if, if, remember the word if in the original languages is four classifications of the Greek word if, if and there is, if and there isn't, if and there may or may not be, if, and it's a possibility but not probable. Okay? It's important to know the ifs here in the scriptures. If and it is. If and there is plenty of consolation because it's only in Christ, not in a reputation, not in the flesh. I don't thank God there's nothing I have to guard and keep. The enemy gives us a, a, a reputation in the flesh because then we think we have to guard it and keep it at all expense in the expense of God and everybody else. But thank God in 1 Peter 1.5, you and I are kept by the power of God. And it's Christ himself in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 24. Christ, the power of God, and thank you, Lord, the wisdom. And if it's wisdom, there's intense love involved. The intensity of love. It's so missing. Intimacy is so missing in men of God. Intimacy it's, is so missing in the church today, in marriages. And I'm going to tell you why. Because Satan convinces believers you still have your reputation you need to keep. You got this reputation. We're so, we're so obsessed with the outward man to the destruction experientially of the inward man. 
in Ephesians 4.23. We need to be constantly renewed. Now, again, as we close, if, and there is, plenty of con- consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any bowels and mercies, fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, and when you do, you won't let anything be done through strife or vain glory. See, that's fleshly reputation. But in lowliness of mind, let each, each of us, we can only do that, esteem other better than themselves. Oh, you wouldn't do that, would you? In every area of your life, in every area of time coming together, finances, you would esteem another better than yourself. That's what it says. That's what it says. That's what it says. You're not taking care of your wife and your kids and yourself when you don't do that. You may say you are, but you're not. Neither would I be. That's just a cloak. That's an excuse for self-expression and a reputation based upon a false image, which is a lie. It's a simple lie. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but alone is the mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own thing. How are you going to do that? You're going to look away from all things that would distract in Hebrews 12, 2. Look not every man on his own things. <laughs> well, I'm doing it for my family. Yeah, sure you are. If you do it, <laughs> sure you are. No, you're not. But every man also on the things of others. Let this mind, let. Let this mind is the equal of Colossians 3 and verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in your experience richly. Let him be at home at you. Let him move out what doesn't belong there. Let him move out what doesn't belong there and let him make room for himself. And then let him take control of your time, your finances, your whole life. Your whole life and my whole life so that the church can function properly. I hear people say, well, we're only one or two, so we can't do it. No, but you can do what God's called you to do. And God has always done the most for the fewest, through the fewest, by the way. Always. He's always done the most through a few that were submitted to him. And don't think that responsibilities that are ours and we and we know them that we make them the, the we make what we should fulfill in our own individuality to be something that the local assembly should do too which is nonsense and by the way it's evil because there's no good in it and there's no good in a fleshly reputation why you can't do certain things why people were doing them and aren't. Kind of interesting. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, being very God himself, and this is not a good translation, thought it not robbery, you know, didn't consider his deity to be something that was to be constantly manifested, but he laid it aside. He never did away with his deity. Never. He did those miracles in John the second chapter. Turn the water into wine. Did miracle after miracle. Miracle after miracle. But it was in his humanity, it was only to reveal in his deity the oneness and the work of his father in his heart. 
And that was it. He didn't think his deity was something to be grasped and held on to in terms of manifestation. Thought it not robbery to be equal with God, which he was already. You're not robbing anything you already are. But, but made himself. That was the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God in Acts 2, verse 23. Can you imagine the Trinity? The Father saying to the Son, well, Son, you know, for this to be accomplished, and you and I know this, and the Holy Spirit, we all know it as God, we're co-equal and co-eternal. You're going you're gonna to put on humanity. Yeah, this is the eternal mind of God. <laughs> Hebrews 4, 3, Revelations 13 and verse 8. Work was finished in the eternal mind of God. But for it to be a reality for those to experience it as human beings, Christ had to identify and put on a human nature. Never a sin nature, but a human nature to reveal and that's why it says in John 1.14, the word became flesh. It wasn't made. It didn't become flesh, and that's it. No, it was, it was what? It became. It wasn't egoneo. The word became the God-man as one. God-man, the man, the Son of God, and by virtue of his deity, the Son of Man in his humanity, by virtue of him as the leader of a whole new race of people with brand new images. That's what that brings out. He didn't think it that. But, and he made himself of what? No reputation for God to be all in his humanity and took upon him the form of a servant. You see this in the types brought out in John the 13th chapter in those first 10 verses. It starts with love. Then he takes off his robe and lays aside his deity, puts on humanity a servant's towel, a doulos, the lowest abject servant that you could even imagine. One whose will is swallowed up in the will of his master. And oh God, please, Redeem the time. Please, Father. And so here as we close, he, it says, He made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the habit, not like men with a sin nature. He was made in the habit of men. He was thirsty. He was hungry. He felt pain. He, was, he felt rejection. He never felt shame. He felt it for others, but he never did for himself. Because he never had a sin nature. Luke one thirty five, Hebrews 4, verse 15, and countless other scriptures bring that truth out. Five minutes. But was made in the habit of men. He had to eat, drink, he had to do all those things. He worked in a carpenter's shop. He only had a three and a half year public ministry. Oh God. But what he performed during those 30 years what we think are just our little jobs and menial. No, those are preparations. Let me tell you, they're preparations. They teach servanthood behind the scenes where it's just the individual in Christ teaching us, teaching us these things. Was made in the habit of men, and that speaks of perfect identification. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Think about that. Listen, he humbled himself. He humbled him, allowed himself to be humbled by God. Isn't that interesting? Why? Because he was a creature of God. He was God's creation. God created his humanity in the womb of that 14-year-old peasant girl, Luke 135. And so he had to learn 
obedience. Not through failure, but constant submission through, through, uh, through pain, through hunger, through thirst, through everything. But yet without sin, but with instant obedience. Oh, God. No wonder our new nature in Christ, our new image is so complete and finished because it is, and that's our position. And that's why we need the teaching of it to bring in the, a proper experience with a submitted will. And being found in fashion, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Yeah, son, you're going to have to die. You're going you're to experience it like no other has. In the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, he was taken by wicked men, wicked hands, even under the Satan, and crucified, murdered. And if he, in, in Acts 2 and verse 23, they said crucify him, murder him in John 19 and verse 15. Even death, even the death of the cross. It's one thing to die for us, to be separated, to experience pain and death and disease, but the death of the cross? With all the sin question being answered to the wrath of the love and justice of God being poured out on you? Like only him? Is this spotless lamb? And then all the sins of those who would receive him poured on him in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21 and made him pay for those as he died for us and as us and paid for all of our sins. Even the death of the cross you know, now, from now on, from that point, listen, God also has highly exalted him, and he's exalted us in him, and given him a name, which speaks of nature and character, which is above every reputation, every name and character, that at the name, the character, the very person of Christ and the work that he's accomplished of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, us in opposition, things on the earth, millennial or otherwise, and things under the earth, even those things that are in hell, because hell, as I believe, and I believe in the scriptures, for now is in the center of the earth, and that's why in Isaiah 14, verse 9, it says, hell beneath is moved to greet you at your coming, all those that, were, that did not receive Christ in time, and enter into an eternal state, as again was brought out in Revelation 22, and verse 11. And that every tongue should confess, Jesus is Lord. You get that? You don't make him Lord. He is Lord before you and I were ever born. He is Lord. Made Lord in his humanity by himself. Nobody made him that. You don't make the master your master. He simply masters you. <laughs> And thank God when he does, because it's the authority of his love. To the glory that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, we thank you that we don't have your, a reputation, something we have to hold on to and grasp. But thank you for our brand new image, the new nature that we have this eternal reality, that we can have this opportunity right now to have these things right now through the preaching of the Word in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13, the Word as it is, the Word of God, not the Word of men. Father, thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.